Welcome to Tell Me Your Story. My name is Josephus Bartua. I've been very fortunate over the years to get to know some amazing, fascinating, and spiritual people. And the goal of this podcast is to create a space so that these people can share their stories and the lessons they've learned along the way. Thank you for listening. Well, uh, welcome to another episode year of Tell Me Your Story. Uh, today, I have a friend, a longtime friend, Max Secor. Uh, he is he is the man, dude. And so, uh, welcome, Max. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Josephus. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And, and Max was one of the guys who I came up with in the campus ministry here in Boston. He was actually going to be one of my groomsmen, uh, but back then he was... Uh, on a on a mission team uh, in Kiev, and so uh, it didn't work out. But he's he's a groomsman in my heart, right there. Um, <laughs> yeah, Josephus, you offered to buy me a ticket back from Ukraine for you to be a groomsman. I thought that is so generous of you. But yeah. come on, dude. come on, that's just too much. I can't ask that of you. No, but yeah, you're like you're a lot of groomsmen. You were you gonna just buy everybody tickets? I, uh, I had like fifteen. I wanted you to be one of them. <laughs> I wanted you to be the lucky 15, you know what I mean? I was. And you know what? When, when people ask me, Max, how many times you've been a groomsman, I count your wedding. <laughs> I was there in spirit. Okay? You were yeah. there in spirit. But I, I love your response, though. You're like, you're like, bro, if you send me the money to buy tickets, like, there's so many needs here in Kiev, like, people who need yeah. dental care. Like, I remember, like, like you're so kingdom-minded. And I remember just thinking, oh, yeah, I'm so grateful <laughs> that max is out there in, in kiev because um Amen. just your just your heart to to serve god's people um but okay. as we start off yeah i always ask the same question uh what is the gospel and how has the gospel impacted your life yeah um it's 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 um it's such a central question to everything that we are right yeah. and I, I think that over the the last couple years i've thought about this question a lot what what is the gospel um, because a lot of people define it in very different ways, right? So you have the Joel Osteens of the world who the gospel is health and wealth, yep. right? Like it's all about, you know, you giving to God and God somehow giving back to you so that you can buy your mansion or something, right? And there's another gospel that is basically personal salvation. It's it's all about your personal experience and salvation with Jesus, which I think is obviously a component of yeah. it. I think, you know, definitely a component of it. I think most recently, but I think actually throughout the decade that I've, I've been, I've been a disciple. Um, it's been about the kingdom. The mm. gospel is the kingdom. Mm. And, uh, it's this, uh, cause it, even if you look at Mark, right. It says, you know, Jesus went about proclaiming that the kingdom of God was come and, you know, therefore people should repent. And that's what Jesus was proclaiming the good news was. That's what he was proclaiming the gospel was, was the kingdom coming. Yeah. And so when you think about what is the kingdom and what is the gospel, it's like there is a kingdom here. And it's not America or Ukraine or Josephus, you're from Liberia, right? Yep. Yeah, or Liberia. It is God's kingdom. It's something that's not physical, but it, it's here in this world. It doesn't have actual boundaries. It doesn't have an army. Um, but it does have citizens, and we are its citizens. And it does have a king, which is Christ. Yep. And it does have rules, which is he, you know, Christ gives us on Sermon on the Mount, or, or you know, in Paul's epistles, we we see what how we got to act yeah. in God's kingdom. And it comes with privileges. One of those being that our names are written in the Book of Life. We are given the Holy Spirit, and uh, we have the forgiveness of sins. And so, and and, we'll, and that we will partake in the resurrection. Yeah. And that's the gospel. It's yeah. all of those things mixed up into one. 
And then your question was, how does that affect my life or how yep. does that? How, yeah. Has the gospel impacted your life personally? Right. I mean, it basically means you, when you become a citizen of this kingdom, you, you know, it, it's different from being a citizen in a democracy hmm. In a democracy. We're all kind of coming together and we all have our own thoughts and we sort of share them. But in the kingdom, there is a king. Yeah. We all just do what the king says. You just it's obey. Not, yeah. what? You just <laughs> obey. The question is, yeah, are right. you going to obey or not? Right. That's it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. In a kingdom, if the king says, you know, we're going to build this bridge or whatever, there's not like a bunch of people who are like, oh, come on, that bridge. We really got to build that bridge. You just, you're going to build the bridge. Right. And, that's <laughs> yeah. it. and so when Jesus asks us to do something, it's a command from a king that his citizens, his uh, subjects really yeah. will obey. And what's crazy about this kingdom is that we willingly decide to be a part of this kingdom. Yep. Right. And if you decide not to build the bridge, that's fine. You're just not in Jesus's kingdom. Yep. Right. And so, um, and it's all encompassing. I don't yep. think that this kingdom is just simply a Sunday thing. I think it's an everyday thing. And I think it's a, when you wake up and when you go to bed, I think it's reflected when, whether it's Moses or whether it's in the Psalms, the idea of meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, uh, that, that just like, that's the kingdom mindset. It's just, you are, you are a, a subject, a citizen in God's kingdom day and night and you meditate on his law. And so yeah. that's, yeah. It, and so it's affected everything in my life, the, yeah. the, the career that I've chosen, um, you know, the, the wife that I have, the life that I lead, the children that I'm going to raise, how I'm going to raise my children, um, how I interact with people it affects everything. Yeah. No, I appreciate you even talking about the gospel and connecting it with the kingdom because that's a motif. It's, it's in the New Testament, of course, but it's, so, it's throughout the Old Testament as well. Totally. You see that with, with David. You see that in First and Second Samuel. You see that throughout Jeremiah, the Psalms. Amen. Like you, you go all the way back to Jacob, guys telling Jacob that kings are going to come from your lineage. Exactly. Um, it it yeah. goes back to Abraham. It goes back yeah. to even the garden, right? Like even totally. the idea that, that God created man and made him sort of like the vice region uh, of this kingdom on, yeah. on earth. Um, yeah. Is a Israel, Israel was a kingdom. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's just becoming, it's an extension to all nations yeah. through Christ. And instead of it being an actual physical kingdom here on earth, it's a kingdom that's all around us and, yeah. and is within us. Absolutely. Um, I, I think I think you're right. It can be easy to make the gospel th this personal thing. And it's, it is definitely part of that. Yeah, that, that totally. God came to, uh, he sent his son to die for our sins so that we don't go to hell, that we go to heaven, that we have the Holy Spirit come and dwell in us. But it, we're part of a bigger narrative. Um, it's not just about us. Um, right. But I work with college students, and uh, I studied the Bible with lots of college students over the years right. um, as a campus minister. And one of the questions that always come up is, why should we believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Uh, what are some evidences that make you to believe that the Bible is the Word of God? This book that was written thousands of years ago, 40 different authors, three different continents. Um, why Can we trust the veracity of the Bible? Sure. Well, I think on a um, on a historical level, we 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 definitely can. Uh, there's so many historical events or cities or places that we wouldn't even really knew existed in the ancient world if it wasn't for the historicity of the Bible. Hmm. I'm always blown away by the example of the Hittites, which basically no one knew who they were or whether they even existed, but the Bible continually mentioned the Hittites early yeah. on. You know, if you look at Joshua or you look at Judges. 
And sure enough, archaeologists eventually uncovered the nation of the Hittites. And that's no surprise to me because the Bible is accurate and people have used it for historical purposes because it's a, a, a correctly and properly written book that documents what happened. And so I think the historicity of the Bible is a huge, at least selling point for me as to why I think it's worthy of, of, of believing in. Um, but I think at the same time, it is a faith. It is a Christian faith and faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And it wouldn't be a faith if there wasn't faith involved. Yeah. And so I can't, I would never say or, or claim to say that I have a hundred percent proof that, you know, that the Bible is totally completely true. I, it, it requires faith. You need yeah. to have faith that Jesus did raise from the dead, um, that it isn't just some cleverly devised story. Right. Um, and even when you think of the apostles, you know, they were willing to be martyred yep. for this story, which they were telling. And that story is either fiction or it's nonfiction. And why would you be willing to be martyred for something that yeah. is fiction? It clearly has to be something that is is true. And, and, and their death, as I like the word used, veracity, I think their death displays the veracity of of the Bible um, yeah. in, in huge ways. Yeah. And I love that you even brought it to the apostles. Uh, when you read the gospel account, Jesus affirms the Old Testament. And then when you look at the old, the, when you look at the New Testament, you look at John chapter 20, for example, you see the disciples there. They're afraid. Their posture is they're kind of terrified of the Jewish leaders. And then you go to Acts chapter four. They're going, we're going to preach this message right. regardless if you kill us. Right. Like right. So something right. must have happened right between like right. John chapter 20. In Acts chapter 4, and I think, right. you know, First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says it all hinges on the resurrection, right? It, it hinges right. on the idea that a man died and rose from the dead. And so yeah, the, yeah. these guys were willing to die for this message. And, and you, your point, right? Why would someone die knowingly? Why would someone die knowing that they're dying for a lie? Right. Yeah. Right. One of the ways that the, um, the earliest Christians and also the apostles— proved the truth of the gospel of also of the old testament was to look at prophecy in the old testament about christ and to see it fulfilled in jesus's life and the idea was how could how could this possibly have been predicted and then fulfilled yeah. whether it's the resurrection or it's him healing the sick or whether it's him having to die or it's him sitting on a donkey or being born of a virgin or you know, whatever it is, all of these things are prophesied in the Old Testament and they happen in Jesus's life. And that was how they convinced people that yeah. it was real. Yeah. Um, and so if you if you are convinced that the Old Testament was written before Jesus's life, mm -hmm. you're convinced that the testimony of Jesus within the Gospels is true, then it must have this connectedness proves that it is true. Yeah. You know, the first few verses of Luke are really powerful. How Luke in his Gospel explains how he found eyewitness testimony yep right that the that he said the reason why he's writing some people read the gospel or they think of the bible and they think well it's just a bunch of stories that people put together but you read the first four verses of luke's gospel and you realize no that's that's definitely not what he was going for here he realizes that these things are extraordinary yep and require extraordinary evidence yeah and so he collected together all of these testimonies and all these witnesses to prove that what we've heard of is true mm-hmm Right. So that we can have certainty in what we've learned. And I think that's just really powerful. So I think the the testimony within there, within the scriptures is just it's 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 incredible. Yeah. And even the cohesion within the Bible itself, 
from New Testament, yeah. Old Testament, um, the different narratives that we have. Um, totally. the, the, the cohesion within the Bible is a testament to something that is that is divine, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Um, and even the fact that, right, Jesus is the only expected person in history. Like, hundreds of years <laughs> before Buddha was born, no one was writing prophecies about Buddha. Be hundreds of years before Muhammad was born, right. no one was writing prophecies that there would be a Muhammad. Or, or before sure. um, Joseph sure. Smith was born, there right, was no right, prophetic right. writings. The idea right. that like, we have Isaiah 53. You can read Isaiah 53, and right. it's almost like you're reading a New Testament account. You know, yeah. you, you can yeah. read Psalm 22. It is as though you're reading a New Testament account. And these are written hundreds yeah. and hundreds of years before Jesus yeah. was born. And if yeah. you believe that Isaiah 53 was written 700 years before Jesus was born, totally. then it goes to show there's someone, someone has to be outside of space and time to write Isaiah mm. 53. And, yeah. and, and, and that has to be a divine entity. Yeah. Yeah. They they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right. And yeah. uh, totally. Yeah. And so, M Max, just going back to your story, how did you become a disciple? Um, I remember coming up in the campus ministry with you and you were definitely a leader. You were I mean, <laughs> you were out sharing your faith like a ton. I remember actually when I got baptized, there was one time. You and I went to a food court, and we just like spent the entire afternoon on Philippians chapter two or something like that, and just reading the Bible right. together. Um, those wow. were just fun days. I just remember thinking, as a new disciple, I just want to spend time with Max because he was. Uh, <laughs> you were just so fired up Thank about you, the Bible, and I can be a Bible nerd sometimes. And so, uh, but how did you become a disciple? When I was in high school, uh, there was a. Uh, a brother, he was, a, he was a disciple who was in my high school. His name was Colin Arbani. And uh, Colin was just a very, uh, he was, he was incredibly joyful and loving. He was also good at almost, I mean, Colin's a very accomplished uh, individual uh, now, but he was even in high school. He was good at almost every sport he played. He was practically a genius. He had great grades and was very popular. Everyone seemed to like him a lot, but he had an incredible humility about him and a real character that displayed Christ. Mm. I mean, really, he's a special guy and a uh, special guy now and special guy. He was a special guy. And um, I, at the same time, was going to the Catholic church, this where I was raised and realizing that the people's lives weren't really matching up with what the Bible was saying within the Catholic church. Now, I'm, I'm sure there are very devout Catholics that strive very hard to, to live out the teachings of Jesus. But I yeah. think in general, I think the discipleship was sort of lacking there. And I was very inspired to go out and find people who were Christians. And Colin was definitely an example of one of them. And so I reached out to him and said, man, I'd really love to hear more about your life and how you read the Bible and how you understand it. Cause I was just blown away by his character and the way he carried himself and the way he lived. Hmm. He, his testimony was his life and yeah. his actions, not just his words. And, uh, and so I, I remember visiting um, the Boston Church, uh, Boston Church of Christ, uh, when I was in high school. I remember Lucas Suh drove, Lucas. drove Colin and I to an event at Harvard where Max Strong spoke. And I sat next to Joseph Porter. And I, I remember seeing up Collier Winters was on stage. It was really, this was like 12 years ago or something. It was pretty <laughs> wild. And, and then the next week uh, we went to like the Newton Newton middle school or something. That's where the, we had a teen event and, and Phil Arsenal preached the word and it was powerful. Wow. He was talking about iron sharpens iron. And I was, I was looking around at like 150 guys 
uh, on a Friday night, you know, wow. teen guys listening to the Bible being preached by this, you know, guy with this thick Boston accent, <laughs> really, giving it, really giving it to us. And I was like, it's a blast. I mean, this yeah. is where I want to be. I want to be with disciples, people who are excited about the word of God, people who are excited to live it out. And I want to be listening to people who care about this, yeah. who care about us following the word of God. And, uh, you know, Phil just, just totally uh, inspired me. Yeah. And then a year, a year later, um, I went off to college. I went to, to BU and, and John Buckholz was the campus minister there. And so, um, we, he studied the Bible with me, Colin, Colin was in the studies and so was, um, Nick Rosenbaum and, uh, and, and Blake Parson came around sometimes. And, uh, I was baptized on October 9th, 2011, uh, wow. a few weeks into, a few weeks into college. What so, an incredible story. Just seeing a, a young guy, Colin in high school, making an impact oh, on totally. you. Uh, th that is an inspiration there for all the teens. Definitely. Uh, who are listening to this, uh, you can make an impact even as a teenager in high school. Yeah. Um, and, and Colin changed my life. Like in, I, I don't have words to describe how much his, the way he lived his life changed yeah. mine. Cause yeah. I would not be talking to you right now. I would not be married to the person I'm married to. I would not know the Bible. I wouldn't know God. I wouldn't be in his kingdom. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have any of the gifts that, that God has given me if it wasn't for Colin's testimony that just blew me away and inspired me to dig deeper yeah. So Amen. totally. And, and I understand you've been doing lots of research about sort of the early church fathers, the patristics um, yeah. era. Patristics. And so yeah. Yeah, exactly. um, what what has surprised you as you research more about the, the early church fathers? Well, it's interesting. I I don't know if it would. Um, I don't know if anything like super. I don't know if this is a surprise unnecessarily. Uh, they. They read the New Testament very literally. Hmm. I think I expected that from them, and I think I got it just got confirmed. Yeah, I don't know if I was terribly surprised by that. Yeah. Um, it was just you know they they read it and just whatever it says, just plain as day, is what they believe. And I and I think that that conviction is what makes, um, for instance, you know the Boston Church such an amazing church is that people have that same conviction. Whatever is there right? <laughs> What's written on the page, that's what we're going to do. And I think that um, they had that same conviction. It's just yeah. take it as cleanly as it possibly can. Today, if you look at Christianity in a broader sense, all over America or even all over the world, people don't do that, hmm. right? It's, it, they make it more complicated than it needs to be, right? When Peter talks about baptism in Acts chapter two, no, it can't mean that. It must be more complicated. You know, there's no way that baptism could be the moment that you're saved or, or things yeah. like that. And then, no, they just read it very plainly, right? Yeah. This is what it is. I think maybe even surprise, maybe we could call this surprising is, you know, when Jesus in the last supper, you know, he says that like, this is my body, um, you know, eat of it. And, you know, this is my, this wine, this is my blood. Um, they took that very literally. Now I don't, I'm not going to say it's like Catholic level, the communion wine is like really his blood or but, something yeah. like that. But they, they believed that somehow after you pray in communion, that it was like Jesus is like there hmm. in a way he wasn't before, right? Like he's somehow physically or something's going on where like the bread takes on Jesus power kind of stuff. It's weird. But that, I mean, they just took it very literally. If yeah. Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, that's just what it meant. It, what, it, didn't, it wasn't symbolic. It was just, okay, that's, what it, <laughs> that's how they understood it. So I think that's probably surprising. Yeah. Okay. If you were to grab a beer with one of these early church fathers if you could go back in time like oh, you can only pick one right I, I, who would it be 
Yeah, that's really hard to choose. And you're like, I just want, you only have an hour and a half, and you can only grab one of these guys. And you're like, man, I have so many questions I want to ask you. I think I have to grab Tertullian. Okay. Yeah, Tertullian. You know, he's he's just so, he's just, he, there's so many hills who that he's willing to die on. Yeah. Whether it's the hill of the Trinity, or the mm. hill of, like, fighting idolatry, or the hill of, like, just so many different hills that he's like no no this is exactly how it has to be yeah. i feel like i want to ask him so many questions about like why he thought you know this was so important or why, why how he got this or something and then also tertullian is interesting because there was a sort of an offshoot of the Catholic. it was kind of it wasn't really catholic it, there wasn't a catholic church yet yeah. in the day of tertullian this was about this would be about 150 years after the death of john the apostle there wasn't really a catholic church yet yeah but tertullian was kind of part of an out offshoot that was more like pentecostalism where they kind of did like tent meetings and and there were prophecies and stuff like that and i want to ask him how he was so like logical and so like strict about say i don't know marriage or something but then at the same time he was willing to like have people speak in tongues or something you'd be like how does that usually we we don't mixed like the emotional and the logical but tertullian somehow was able to do both of them yeah so i probably would take tertullian but there's so many amazing people that it's it's hard to choose yeah now that's such an amazing time in church history before the council of nicaea um those like first two three hundred years while the church was being persecuted they kept growing it's amazing right like it's underground um the roman empire doesn't until the edict of milan yeah. You know, Christianity is illegal, but right. it is, keeps growing. And it's this, like, weird thing. People, like, they're eating Jesus's flesh and drinking his blood. They yeah. love each other. Like, patricians yeah. and plebs are together. Like, what is yeah. this weird thing? They're diverse. <laughs> but I want to join. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and, right, right, and, right, and, right, and, right. And it's this interesting dichotomy that, you know, after the church becomes institutionalized um, in Rome, um, it, it, that's when it started to get funky, right? When you combine power and religion together. But before 313, the church is being persecuted, but it's still growing. What do you think about that dynamic? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Um, I mentioned Tertullian already, but he actually said that the blood of martyrs is seed. Hmm. And and so the more and he said the more you kill us, the more of us are you know come about. You can't. You basically the the more blood is spilt, the more Christians there will be. Yeah. Um, what do I what do I get of the mar- what do I think about the martyrdoms that happened? No, or what do I no, about? I just wanted to know what do you think what do you think about the idea that before three thirteen AD, before the yeah, like the idea that the church was being persecuted, but then the church was still growing, right? Yeah. And it was still like I mean it came to rival the Roman Empire. Yeah. But then after three thirteen, yeah, sure. as the church got institutionalized, as the Catholic Church became sort of like uh like the church the church yeah, it became the church of the of the empire. Uh, yeah. It started to get funky with, um, you know, things yeah, being, think, yeah, yeah. I think that, um, I think that when things get, uh, when there isn't a, 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 when there isn't a cost, right. When there isn't a barrier to something, people join things easily. Hmm. And when they join things easily, they don't value they don't value what they have or what they're gaining or or what they will lose. It it just changes the whole atmosphere of of the thing. Hmm. And and I think that um somehow there's a somehow there's a there's a I don't know a certain power that comes about joining something that is meaningful 
and that is powerful and that costs you something. Wow. Right. You might even say that like uh, Matthew 13, right. The parable of the, uh, the, the treasure, the hidden treasure, right. That like after three thirteen, people didn't have to sell their field to get mm. that treasure anymore. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, because you don't have to sell your field to get that treasure anymore, it's kind of like, well, <laughs> I have treasure everywhere. Right? It's like, yeah. I don't have to sell a field. Yeah, whatever. It's just, yeah. it's just, that's what it is. And so people didn't treat it so seriously. And then somehow before that, when it costs something, it actually has value. Yeah. So I think when people had to be willing to die to become disciples, there was something really, really special about that. And, and what's interesting is that even today, I think there, there is such a large cost to becoming a disciple when you really decide to crucify everything in your life, right? Mm. When you try, when you decide to look at through every, everything, through heaven's eyes, right. Or yeah. through the cross, right. All of a sudden your media diet is different, right. Things you maybe watched before you're not going to watch anymore, yeah. right. Or the things that you thought were cool to listen to, you're probably not going to listen <laughs> to or, or a job that you wanted to have. You're like, well, actually maybe, I don't know, that job probably isn't quite glorifying to God, right. Or, or something like that. And there's decisions that, and consequences that happen. Right. Yeah. So yeah. totally there's still, there's still, a, there's still a cost and, and we still pay it. And yeah. it still gives value to it. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cost gives value to things. Absolutely. Uh, what are some resources people could use uh, if they wanted to research the early church fathers? Uh, so there are. Th- there is. Um, so, th- so the works of David Rousseau are very accessible. So he has many books that I think are. I think anyone from any church could read and feel very like uh, very comfortable. I think yeah. there's this it's, it's very challenging stuff, but I think all good all good things that I think we all need to hear, and very as I said, very accessible. It's not um, academic. Yeah. It's not academic in any way. Um, obviously, the articles that I'm I'm writing weekly are I hope not too academic, and um, there I'm just explaining what people said, and you can kind of do what you want with that. I think like whatever Justin said is what I'm going to write. And then you can decide what you want to do with it. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not telling you what I'm going to do with it, but <laughs> you should figure out what you want from it. Um, I think that also David Berceau on YouTube, if you just type in David Berceau, yeah. he has a website or he has a um, lessons on different topics. He has like what the early Christians thought about communion or what they thought about baptism or what they thought about um, idolatry or what they thought about sex. You know, that's, it's, it's all there. Yeah. Um, and you can look that up. That that's very very accessible. So that's that's probably the easiest. There's also a website that I like. It's called earlychristiancommentary.com, and it's basically a list of scriptures. Uh, it's like basically you click like Genesis, and then you click chapter 25, and then you click verse three, and it has all the quotes of the early Christians oh, when wow. they quoted that verse. And so that can be pretty cool. It's yeah. a little messy because sometimes you have to go and actually read the chapter that it came from to understand the context of what yeah. they're saying. Mm-hmm. So that can be a lot of work, but yeah. those are two. Re- those are a couple of resources, and finally, all the early Christian writings are available online for free. You can just Google any of them. So, yeah. Anti-Nicene Fathers. There's ten volumes. It's about ten thousand pages. Yeah, they're all there. They're all free online. And I would say the the earliest work sounds like you're reading Paul. Like yeah, a lot of it is just very oh, yeah. you, you, first and second Clement. Yeah. And you're just reading it and you're like, okay, this could fit. This could easily fit in the New Testament. Oh, absolutely. Not, like yeah. it's, it's, it's very general. You're like, this, you know, very readable. So no, it, that's yeah. what fascinates, uh, you know, you're reading Polycarp, you're like, this could be first John. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, oh, totally. it, it yeah. just, it's almost like it fits in the Bible. Um, yeah. It's so right. good. 
It's a yeah. testimony to their to their witness of the early Christian or the the New Testament Christians and the apostles. Yep. They really did know them. They really did interact with them, and their writings are like almost identical to yep. what they were being taught. So, yeah. Yeah. and I and I love how many times they're quoting scriptures. Oh, um, and and it just makes you to think. Oh, like they believe that these were not just like epistles. These were not just letters. Like these were. That God breathed, um, and 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 they were they were important and they were standard for the early church. Um, but let me yeah. ask you this: How can people find the articles you're writing? You're writing a lot of articles about the early church fathers. How can people access that? Which website yeah. is it on? Yeah. So my name is Maxim Secor, M A X I M S E C O R, and you can find me on Facebook. And I just post them on my page or on my, you know, Facebook page every every single week whenever I write them. And- they're going to be on medium. So if you go on medium.com and you look up my name, Max and Secor, you will find them as well. Awesome. Um, and I, and I'd say one more, can I, can I actually actually uh, say why I think it's important to read them? Go for it. Right. I think it's important to read them because today we have such a large volume of commentary in the Christian world. For instance, you could name, I don't know, you know, John Piper, John MacArthur, Tim Keller, you know, the first thing they're all Calvinists, right? But we could we could name many, many other authors, right? I don't know, C.S. Lewis, he's yeah. great, right? You know, you Chesterton, you could go older, you could go to John Wesley, or you could do Luther or Calvin or Zwingli, right? You could name all these people, right? And they're all great. All their commentary is great, right? But it's commentary from people who lived thousands of years after the apostles had died. Mm. And the early Christians are basically the earliest volumes of commentary that we possibly could have. Yep. So when people say like, oh, I'm reading John McCarthy's commentary, I think that's great, right? Like you're reading some guy who grew up 50 years ago in LA, <laughs> right? But why not read someone who like spoke Greek and lived with the apostles yeah. or lived with people who knew the apostles and figure out what they thought? And, and that's why I think it's super important as just a historical data point of commentary because it's the it's the closest thing that we possibly can get. Yeah. So I think it's very important to look back at them. Yeah. All right. That's and, all. And, I think. And before I even go to the next uh, question, uh, I, it's cool that you even brought that up. You know, one of the things that the church, the early church was really trying to battle against was this idea, this concept of syncretism. Um, this idea that as they were pushing the boundaries and going to new frontiers, um, you know, you're encountering all these different religions, all these different pagan religions, and, and Christianity is malleable. But one of the things that they were trying to, and you even see that in, in Galatians, you see that in the oh, Book totally. of Romans. Like that's something even Paul in the first century, Paul is trying to fight against. Right. Like, how did they try to preserve the scriptures and, and be relevant to the culture? But without compromising the gospel to syncretism and kind of combining paganism and, and Christianity, and I think that's even something that is so relevant to our, our culture today. Because uh, I think we want, as a, as a as a as Christians, as churches, we want to be relevant to the culture, but we don't want to be so relevant that we lose the gospel itself. Uh, did you have you seen any of that sort of tension there uh, in the early church fathers as they're writing? Totally, yeah. totally. And <laughs> it's something that I, I feel as though I need to spend more time looking into. Um, like a, a question would be like, should should modern Christians have Christmas trees? Hmm. Right. This would be a question, right? It's a pagan. It's basically a pagan ritual to have a tree in your house. 
right? That that was like, I don't know, a thousand years ago that some like French pagans had, they, you know, they put trees in their house. And now we still have Christmas trees in our house. We call them Christmas trees. It's connected to the event Christmas. Should we have them? I don't really know. It's, it's, it's a good question that needs probably more time. I need more time to probably think through. But certainly the early Christians had the principle of we will love the things that God loves and we will hate anything that displeases him. Hmm. So, um, so for example, like it, you look at our culture in America of maybe violence, for instance, right? Like action movies, right? You think about an action movie, someone's firing an assault rifle and killing someone in this action movie, right? You're gaining entertainment value from someone firing an assault rifle at someone and killing them. Now, I understand we're all like, oh, it's an action movie, Max. Like, you know, it's whatever. It's like, no, no. Does, does, is God pleased with assault rifles and people getting killed with assault rifles? I don't care if they're good guys or bad guys or something like that. Would you as a Christian pick up an assault rifle and shoot someone? No, you probably wouldn't. Right. So so why do you have why is there entertainment value in in that thing? Right. And so when you might say, well, you know, we just want to be relatable. It's like, well, the early Christians would tell you, like, you should love everything God loves. And if it displeases him, you, you should hate it. Right. So how much do you hate violence? Hmm. How much do you hate theft? How much do you hate lying? Like a lot of our sitcoms today are, you know, most episodes are centered around someone not being truthful hmm. or someone putting someone else down. Or even if you think about sitcoms today, they have a lot to do with sex, right? Like just, mm. oh, yeah, it's, oh, it's funny. It's sex. You know, it's whatever. It's, you know, premarital sex or, or whatever. And I, I, I really love, I, I, I love friends. <laughs> I don't watch friends. I don't yeah. watch friends anymore, but I yeah. really love friends. I had a great time watching it. And, and I look back and I'm like, well, maybe it wasn't the best thing to watch. Yeah. Now, every person has to make their com- completely their own decision about what they're willing to watch and what they're not willing to watch. But the main joke of Friends is the divorce that 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 Ross gets divorced three times, right? Like that's like a central joke of the whole series. Well, what do you think about divorce? Do you think yeah. God loves divorce? No, actually, Malachi says that God hates divorce, right? So should we should we revel in it? Should we think mm. it's fun? Should we find entertainment value in Ross saying Rachel's name instead of Emily's name at the wedding in England, right? And then them having to get a divorce. Is that funny? It's like, no, it's not funny. It's tra- it's tragic. It's yeah. terrible. It's awful. It's like the antithesis of what God is desiring. And so I think that there's there's moments like that about the Christmas tree, for example. I have I, I I'm yeah. it's still an open question for me. Still an open. I'll, I'll call it an open question. <laughs> no, um, it, it's it's such an interesting dynamic uh, for Christians, right? Because Jesus doesn't want us to live in a monastery. Like, you know, right? Like he wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. Um, and, right. and how do we balance that? Be in the world and being a light of the world. Right. But also well, not be yeah. influenced by the world. Right. Um, so the early Christians wouldn't go to a theater. Yeah. Right. They, they wouldn't go to a theater. And if someone was an actor or actress, they would tell them, you need to quit your job. Wow. And, and there's and there's one um, letter by Clement of Alexandria where he's writing to another church and the church is saying, well, this is this guy's livelihood. What are we going to do? And he said, no, you, you should tell him to quit his job. He has to find another job and you should help him find a place to live and feed him if after losing his acting job, wow. he can't find a place to live. And if he can't, you can send him to Alexandria where I live and he can live in my house and I will feed him because wow. it's better for him to just you know, to be clean of, of this, con- of his conscience rather than acting in a theater where people, 
you know, or they were they're vile today in the theater, you know, in 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 acting, you know. Oh yeah. Acts or violence, and they were vile back then. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that that was that was their conviction. And but I understand totally. How do we continue to relate to people, and how do we be all things to all men? I mean, yeah. Paul Paul basically says, "Don't circum, don't be circumcised." And then in the very next chapter, He's circumcised. Sir Timothy. Timothy. Yeah, exactly. In the very next chapter. There's <laughs> so definitely things to think about, right? You're like and, Paul, uh, what do you want, bro? You... It's crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. You know, and. Uh, so if you're around people and they want to eat kosher, you should eat kosher, I guess. Uh, but uh, I, don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But as we as we transition here, what inspired you to go to the Ukraine? Because I remember, I think it was it must have been 2014. The the Ukraine, the war just started in Crimea, mm-hmm. and you were. <laughs> like a war broke out in Ukraine, and you just graduated. You got guy in a really good job and make a lot of money, but you're yeah. going. Oh yeah, I want to go to Kiev and, and go help Sean Wooten and and <laughs> and serve and, and serving in any way possible, and even learn the language and, and yeah. get immersed in the culture. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to go to the to the Ukraine? There isn't anything else on this earth worth doing rather than preaching the gospel. Hmm. There isn't anything else worth doing. The most valuable thing that any of us will do today will be help someone better understand Jesus's mission here on earth. That's that, that's all that's even if you said, you know, Max, I could make a million dollars today or I could baptize someone. It would be to baptize someone, right? It doesn't matter. Like there's no, there's no, it has infinite value. Right. To share the gospel with someone to help them understand who Jesus is and who God is and, and what this world is that's around us. I mean, it's it's the most important thing possible. And so when I was offered the opportunity to go be in a church um, across the world and, and to help in Ukraine or stay in America and just make money. Um, the obvious, the, the idea was, I mean, to me, it seemed obvious Yeah. now there are plenty of people who make money and they give a lot, right. They're very generous. And I don't look down on those people in, in any way, uh, basically missions is, <laughs> it require you know, requires those people. Well, yeah. We so need those love. people to make money. So some of us can right. go exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, so it's a give and take and there's an economy there, right? Like some people, someone has to give and someone has to go. Yeah. Right. So, um, but I think tent making is also tent making is also powerful. And, and I think if people can do that as well, you know, if someone can move to Germany and support themselves by working in Germany and help the churches there, I think that's great. And they should, they should think about doing something like that. Um, I think Ukraine specifically, um, I won't, I'll speak very generally. Um, and I, and I'll speak for our families, our family of churches, but I'll also speak about even outside of our family of churches, American churches are strong. Yeah, they just are. <laughs> they have generational faith. Hmm. People just who generation after generation know the faith, or they have leaders, strong leaders, right, who are Christians, um, intelligent people, or people who are willing to to be very sacrificial in lots of great ways. When you go abroad and Christianity is newer, or Protestant Christianity is newer, um, there isn't the same kind of structure. There isn't the same kind of foundation of faith, yeah. and so. For example, when you go to Ukraine, some of the Ukrainian churches, they, they don't have some of the same kind of, I think, uh, leadership capabilities amongst the membership yeah. or, or Bible knowledge hmm. that generational faith produces within America. And so when I went over there, I felt like, wow, you know, like 
Oh, maybe in America, I was like, well, you know, in the Boston church, there's lots of Mac C cores. Yeah. In Ukraine, I felt a little bit more unique. Now there were, there actually are great servers over there and lots of great leaders. I just felt like I could have been more used in Ukraine yeah. and there were less people who are willing to serve as much as in America. I think there's a lot of great people in America and a lot of great people in Ukraine. I think there's less people in Ukraine yeah. who, are, who are able to serve. And so that's why it's important to do foreign missions. I love your mindset that preaching the gospel is the most important thing. You know, uh, just the idea that God has a bigger plan for our lives than just making money, living the American dream, just retiring, having a nice 401k. Um, let me even ask you, right? So like, did you learn Ukrainian and Russian or did you just learn Russian? I just learned Russian. Okay. And at some point I put a little bit time in the Ukrainian. So at some point I was able to do like maybe like a welcome or, or something like that in Ukrainian. How long did it take you to learn Russian? Uh, so I kind of like two years I spent, I've spent two summers in Ukraine before I moved there. And yeah. so I had a little bit of experience. And then my senior year of college, I took two courses in Russian. They probably actually weren't as helpful as I thought they were going to be. But once <laughs> I actually got there and I had a Bible talk with, you know, 20 people in it and only one person spoke English other than me, you have to learn Russian really fast. Oh, yeah. Like that's because <laughs> you're not going to be able to be in Bible studies or D groups or you know, your Bible talk, you're not going to be able to lead it. Yeah. And so if you want to be able to do any of these things, you're going to have to learn Russian very quickly. Yeah. But thankfully, no one there speaks English or not. No, one, I should say no one, but very few people do. Yeah. And so um, you end up having to use your Russian all the time. Yeah, it forces you, <laughs> it forces you to assimilate really fast. Yeah, 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 yeah. What yeah. do you? Yeah. How long did you spend in Ukraine? So altogether, it was probably like about four years, but four years. from... From my uh, finishing college to coming back, it was three. Okay. What do you admire about the Ukrainian culture uh, while you're there? Was it the food? Was it the people? Like, What do you admire the most? What are some of the things that you admire about the Ukrainian culture? I really like the culturally specific things that they do. Um, I know it's not a very like, it's not like a, uh, it's not like a, a beatitude or a fruit of the spirit or something like that. But but it's like, there's just traditions that they do, which are just amazing and, and a lot of fun. So Ukrainian weddings are, are always really a lot of fun. Uh, you know, maybe they'll, they'll do some of the traditions like there's a kind of big piece of bread that people bring and like they break it and it, like celebrates life and, and stuff like that. Or uh, the sauna. So yeah. guys, guys going together, getting going to the sauna, <laughs> hanging out. Um, to me, that was such a cultural experience. And I love it. Every time I go, I'll, I'll grab my brother and brothers in laws. I have I have uh, three of them. So the, the four of us will go together. And we'll go to the sauna together and have a few beers. And, I love that imagery right there. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good time. And, and it's true. We are uh, we are as God created us. It, it is God, definitely so. gets you guys to be very connected and close. Yeah, after yeah we're that. very close. Yeah, we know each other. <laughs> we know each other afterwards. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's very it, no, it, it's the stuff like that. You know, yeah. that really I think was was a lot of fun. Um, I mean, also I was just young. You know, I was I was 22 years old and I was in campus ministry in a foreign country and we had just a blast. We just had a lot of fun all the time. Um, I think that, I think the Ukrainians know how to relax. I think mm. they know how to have fun. Yeah. I think that's something that Americans, we kind of struggle with sometimes. I think we want to work really hard all the time. And I think Ukrainians understand that there's times to work and there's times to also, um, to take it easy. And I think that that's something that I learned while I was there was that, you know, Max, it's okay to, it's okay to take a weekend and spend yeah. time with your family. Yeah. or with friends uh that's okay to do because I, I i'm not 
that, that's not easy for me. <laughs> yeah, that's always one of the things that, I, I, yeah, that's always one of the things I learned when I leave Boston is, you know, Boston is such a hustle city. You know, people come here to go to school, to get their master's. It, it, we're all about work. You know, we love to work and then work some yeah. more. So whenever I leave Boston, I was seeing San Diego a couple months ago and just like the vibe was just so chill <laughs> and so laid back you know i think yeah. i came back thinking man i can learn a few things about that just like relaxing right. a little bit um right. but let me ask you this so you still have friends in the in the ukraine and you still have oh, yeah. um, extended family members there yeah. uh, your, your, your in-laws live there um you know over the last four or five months here since uh what was it february 24th when the war broke out it's sure, been yeah. an incredible pain. It's been an incredibly painful time. Uh, it's been mm-hmm. a crazy time. How are your friends doing? How are your family doing? Are, are, are they in Moldova now? Are, are they still in the Ukraine? Um, most, yeah. of, most of my friends are still in Ukraine and all of my family, that is to say all of my wife's family is still in Ukraine. Um, it is, uh, you know, it was really challenging. It was really emotional. I remember the night everything started I had a friend email me, actually, he's not Ukrainian, he doesn't live in Ukraine, and he was like, praying for you guys, seems like it's getting really crazy. And I thought, I don't, I mean, I was like, I don't know, who knows, I mean, this guy, whatever. And literally within an hour, uh, I had a friend text me and he's like, I, I heard an explosion. Wow. Right. And so, we, and I was like, oh, really? Wow. And then he's like, I heard another one. And I was thinking, wow, that's, is this real? Is this really happening? And I, I remember we were trying to go to bed, it was like midnight. And I was, I was thinking, oh, I hope Jenya, I hope my wife, <laughs> I hope she just goes to bed, yeah. you know, but then her sister said, I heard an explosion. And I just think, you know, it, it was just tears for the rest of the night, you know, mm. from both of us. It was, yeah. it was really challenging because we didn't, we never really thought that this was possible. I think yeah. a lot of people thought this was impossible yeah. and we didn't want to believe it was possible, but it very much was. And, um, and uh, it, it's hard to even imagine now that it's still happening. It, I, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to even comprehend. I, I it's it still seems very not real somehow. Yeah. Um to see how much territory Russia has even taken and and I, what does that even mean and yeah. and it is, you know, I I see cities that I've been to or or that I know friends from that are like, you know, getting wrecked and I'm like, "Duh, that's crazy. That's yeah. that's unbelievable." And um I don't know what the future brings and I think yeah. it's uh I think it's tricky. So yeah. and, and and just thinking about the fact that over the last since the war started in 2014, so, so many of the best and brightest uh, of Ukraine have left the country. And even the implication for that, for like building churches going forward, it just is just so difficult. Uh, but yeah. God, but God's in control. Um, Vladimir, totally. Vladimir Putin is not in control. He guy is the one that's in control. He's sovereign over all of it. And. He has totally. his purposes, and and he's gonna bring his purposes to bear, uh, no matter what happens. And I think I think for people who are like, you know, this is challenging for my wife. But when we even talk about the kingdom, right, is to really ask ourselves, what kingdom are we a part of? Yeah, right. Because we see Ukrainians firing at Russians, and Russians firing at Ukrainians. And how much of a Ukrainian pride do I have hmm. to think? Oh, I oh I hope they get them, or or I want to I want to support the war efforts in Ukraine. It's like. I don't really know if I should do that. Right. Like it's, it's, it's very challenging because it's like, should I give someone money so that they can buy bullets so that they can fire at someone hmm. when it's told us to turn the other cheek? I mean, I, I, I don't really, 
I maybe maybe turn the other cheek has statutes of limitations, right? Like in, until someone wants to kill you, you should turn the other cheek. But then once they want to kill you, you, you can kill them back. I I I I don't I tend to not think that, but um, I think that's what makes this really challenging for for us is because Jenny and I want to engage, hmm. we want to help, we want to go like, oh yeah, we want to feel like oh we got to fight, you know, like yeah. oh totally. And then at the same time, it's like, well, these are just like two earthly nations. Yeah. Won't exist in the end, yeah. right? And the actions that people are committing uh, have eternal consequences, yeah. and God will judge what people are doing, um, Russian and Ukrainian. And um, it's challenging to not have your heart involved in it. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, bro. What advice would you give to a young person who is thinking about going on a foreign mission, uh, maybe in Europe or South America or Southeast Asia, Africa? You know, maybe. They're in college, they're about to graduate soon, or maybe they're young professionals uh, and they're thinking about making their life matters uh, and they're thinking about going to foreign mission. You you did it for a few years here. Um, yeah. And so w what advice would you give to that person? Well, <laughs> part of me wants to say just go, right? Go and experience and, yeah. and, and work hard and and affect people's lives in positive ways and um, learn things, right? Go and do it and grow yeah. while you're while you're young, while you're either not married or don't have children or you don't have you know huge job commitments while you haven't started a career. It's the perfect opportunity to go. Sir, mm. it's the perfect time to do it. Yeah. So if you're thinking of doing it, do you it. Probably <laughs> do it. You probably should do it. I'm gonna say you probably should do it. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is because I think that at the same time when we're young, it's fun, mm -hmm. but there's also uh, things you need to learn. I, I think that if I went now, I probably would be a lot more effective hmm. now in the mission than I was 10, you know, eight years or six, I don't know, six years ago, right? Six, yeah. seven years ago. I'd be more effective now. I just know more. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm almost 30 years old. <laughs> I've read the Bible a lot more. Um, I think I understand people a little bit better. Um, I think that now I'd be more, I'd actually be more effective. I don't have quite the same amount of time because I have a wife and I have a child and maybe I'll, if I went, I'd be a tent maker. I'd have a job, but at the same time, there's something to say about even older people who want to go because they do have more experience and yeah. they do have something to offer, I think. And so, um, yeah, I think there's at all ages, yeah. there's, there's pluses and minuses yeah. of going on a foreign mission. So okay. sorry, I'm not like exuberantly just go, 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 go. I mean, you might do really well, right? Yeah. You could go, and it could be great. And it, and it will be great. You'll have a ton of fun. At the same time, we need to be realistic that yeah. someone who's 19 years old, who's just moving to China, you know, like you're going to have a lot to learn, yeah. right? Like you, this yeah. is going to be a learning experience, right? Like, yeah. It's not I think be. there can be a romantic view about missions. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I, I'm just going to go there and these right. people are going to be easy to love and it's going to be exciting. Right. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to make memories and put on my Instagram page. But I, I, I love what you're even saying. Like, you know, you're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. You're going to learn some work. things. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be hard work. Um, and I think we can have a romantic perspective, a rosy color view about missions. And so I appreciate you even saying that. And I think the person that does that, who goes, they have to be very flexible. Hmm. You're going to be very flexible about your living situation. Um, you're going to be very flexible about where you end up serving or how you end up serving, or if you get paid, or how much you end up getting paid, you just need to be ready to be very flexible and to make it about serving people and serving God, yeah. not about your desire to be in Paris or your desire to be in Milan or or wherever I don't know South Africa, right? Like, because maybe maybe there isn't a spot there, and you're going to have to go to I don't know Zimbabwe and not South Africa. Well, okay, well, what? Why are you here? 
Yeah. Are you here to be in Zimbabwe or are you here to be in Paris or are you here to surf? Right. Yeah. So that's really important that people's hearts are, it's not a vacation. It's, it's not a vacation. It's, it's not a vacation. It's, a vacation. It's, a vacation. It's, not, it's not tourism. Yeah. It's not tourism. Either, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not tourism. Yeah. And um, yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah, this isn't a semester abroad so that yeah. you can like learn a new culture. Yeah. You're really serving people. And yeah. if you're ready to do that, then I think, yeah, then people should go. Absolutely. And you have a four-month-old son, right? Yeah. Named Lucas. And Luke, that's Luke. Luke. Just Luke. Just Luke. Yeah, Luke. Just Luke. Okay. Named Luke. And so how have you learned about God as a new dad? I remember when I was um, in the hospital and the midwives gave my son to me for the first time. And he was all dirty looking and crazy looking. But I remember just holding him and thinking, man, this boy hasn't done anything for me yet. But I just I just love this boy. And all I want is a deep relationship with this boy. You know, and, and and just thinking, oh wait, like that's how God if it's, the Bible is true that God created us, then he's our father. And then that actually means the implication of that is that he wants and desires a deep relationship with us um like jeremiah chapter 29 says uh act 17 talks about and so wh- how have you learned about god's character through being a dad in this last four months i think that when you look at when i look at luke's uh i, I would say like hel- helplessness really you, you know like we <laughs> you need to take care of him constantly right this yeah. guy needs help and yes. uh, when you think about us being God's children, uh, we need, we, we definitely need help. Right. And, and God knows that. Um, and right now I can't have any expectations for Luke, right? Yeah. Mm. I, I have no expectations for him at four months. There's zero expectations. Now when he's four years old, maybe I will have some expectations, right? Like you're going to put your shoes on or, or you're going to be, you're going to be potty trained or something like that. Right. Like there's going to be expectations for a four-year-old for a four month old. There's, there aren't any expectations. Yeah. And I think with, uh, with God, he, he puts us in situations and he has certain expectations for us based on our ability and, and age and maturity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I just think of how gracious and loving and guiding mm-hmm. our father in heaven is and how gracious and guiding and fatherly and loving we must be with our own children. I also think about the infinite value of one sinner who repents hmm. right, and the infinite value of one child being born. Hmm. And, I, and I think about just how valuable Luke is in, he's the most valuable thing. There's nothing more valuable in my life than Luke. I mean, that's completely it. And you think about how valuable we are to God. Um, yeah. Whether it's our helplessness, uh, the level of expectation that we do or don't have our value. I think having a child, having Luke, I'm able to look at him and see all of those things in the character of God. So, Amen. Yeah. Well, last question here. Uh, you've been a disciple now for twelve years. Actually, yeah, it's like uh, it's like ten. It's almost eleven. Almost eleven years. Yeah. And you, when you were getting baptized, you said Jesus is Lord, and you got right. baptized, right? Amen. And that's that's awesome, right? But sometimes yeah. you don't even know what you're jumping into a lot of the times, right? Like, what <laughs> has helped you since that day? saying Jesus is Lord to this moment, what has helped you over the years to continue making that decision every day, every month, every every year, saying Jesus is Lord? Because it's one thing to say Jesus is Lord at your baptism, 
But you hit some bumps and you you hit some hard times. What has helped you to continue making Jesus Lord over the years? Wow, so so many things, right? Um, I think staying in the Word every day, making sure that you you read the words of Christ and and you hear what God wants you to hear every single day. Mm. Someone once said, uh, you know, there's a huge difference between someone who reads the Bible seven days a week and someone who reads it four days a week. Mm. There's a huge difference between those two people. And over the course of years, you will see the difference between the person who is basically reading the Bible twice as much as the other person. We need to be in the word. If we're in the word, I think that we are, we are bound there. I also think that what we kind of talked about before is that the more you give, the more you're going to get out. And I think that as we sacrifice and as we um, serve, that we are more bound to Jesus and more connected to the vine than we ever could be. Hmm. I think when we when we give up ourselves, we're doing what Christ did and we partake in that cup that he drank and we abide in the vine when we do that. And if you're abiding in the vine, you're going to stick through things. I think looking also at the saints throughout the ages, I think that people can get a lot out of reading John Wesley. Yeah, uh, he's going to kick your butt. Um, you know, Jonathan Edwards is going to kick your butt. Uh, <laughs> uh, more modern. I really like Tozer. Yeah. You know, uh, Tozer's going to like just tell you, you know, what <laughs> what a man of God should be, you know, how he how he should what he should look like in his heart, you know, and 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 that can be really inspiring. Yeah. Uh, prayer. I mean, talking to God daily, being with him, you know, communing with him, yeah. I think. Um, I think that people are that people might think, well, it, I don't want to it's almost like, well, I don't want to take this. I don't want to be weird. I don't want to take this too seriously. You can't take Bible reading and prayer too seriously. Oh yeah. Right. You can't take serving too seriously. You can't take, and you know, I, I think maybe you could do this, but on some level, if you want to read the, you know, CS Lewis's and, and, and the Chesterton's and all these other things, you know, it's, it's good, right? You can't, you know, I you might be able to take that too seriously, but, but you, but doing that will help you a lot as well. I think there's so many ways that like just completely taking this seriously. I think it's, it's, if you can get it in your mind that there is nothing else in your life but this, then you will stay with Christ. You will abide in the vine, and when hard things come, you will continue. Or when hard teachings, things that you like hadn't even thought of, you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't, oh, I didn't think about, you know, because as you grow, you think new things come. Oh, well, how am I going to be godly in my finances? How am I going to be godly in my marriage? How am I going to be godly in raising children? How am I going to be godly in my career? Like all of these things come up. Yep, you are at a crossroads about whether you're going to make a decision for Christ, or you're going to make it for the world, right? In all of those spheres. And so if you're abiding the vine, reading the word, praying, serving, uh, you know, reading, you know, I think historically who the saints might be, you know, you, you can decide for yourself who those might be. And, yeah. and also of course the church, I yeah. mean, you need to be in a fellowship that is inspiring you. That's leading you to Christ, that's exhorting you and encouraging you, you know, let us spur one another on to good deeds. You know, yeah. we need to be spurring one another on. And, um, and I think that that's important too, to find people within the fellowship who inspire you and spur you on to good deeds. And um, if you don't find those people, but you just find people to watch the football game with, uh, that's not very useful hmm. to be quite honest, right? Yeah. I mean, you're looking for people who are going to challenge you yeah, and um, to surround yourself with those people. Yeah. Dude, you inspire me, man. You're one of those people who I want to surround myself you with. inspire me. <laughs> I'm super grateful for you and just your love for the Bible, your love for the kingdom, and I'm so grateful for your example. Uh, I think it's one thing to 
talk about being a disciple, but it's all other thing to live it out. And you definitely have been living it out for such a long time. And I'm super grateful for you. Thank you so much for joining us, Max. Yeah. Thanks, Josephus. It's been a great time. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, hit the subscribe button and spread the word about it. See you next time.